2: Okay, uh, Welcome to another exciting episode of uh, SFP Now. We've got a very, very British affair today, um, as in we have um, an interview coming up with uh, Arvind Ethan David, who is, the, uh, who is the writer of the IDW comic book series uh, Dirk Jankley, but he's also um, the, writer, the main writer and executive producer of the new BBC America Dirk Jankley series, which is uh, currently going into production. Uh, so we'll be running that later on. But before we get to that fun stuff, uh, joining me as always are Craig and Raisa. How you guys doing?
3: I thank you. Good, good. Yes,
2: yes. Uh, I'm good too. <laughs> <laughs> and and that that is my worst Scottish accent. I'm sounding a bit like a Bir- guy from Birmingham now, aren't I? You know, yeah, so I think I, you
0: should stop before you offend I, I should, lots of people. I should
2: stop before I, um, before before I, I am hypnotised and smashing my own wrist or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so we'll we'll go easy. We'll do the um, we'll do the flash first because we've had all sorts happening with Zoom, yes, and we have. and stuff like that. And uh, obviously, he's got his powers back.
3: Um, he, Barry, Zoom has, but Barry is in the process of trying to get his back. He ends up disintegrating and going into a pocket universe or yeah, whatever. Yeah, that,
2: that, that's right. Yeah, So I disintegrate in, and, and Zoom, Zoom says, well done, you've just killed your flash. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, yeah. Right.
0: It's kind of the, you know, it's kind of the let's do another stupid thing to undo this other stupid thing I did. <laughs> you know, because when Barry gave up his powers to save Wally, fair enough, that's a heroic gesture. But that means... What did he think was going to happen? I mean, did he think that Zoom was going to be like, oh yeah, that's cool. I'll, I'll, I've got the speed now. I'm just going to sit around because you know he's clearly still dying. Mm. What, yeah. gets,
2: what gets me is he, he barely knows Wongie. He, Wongie's just yeah. come into it this season, and um, you know, and obviously there's that loyalty because he's the uh, he, he's a guy's son.
0: He was doing it for Joe. He was yeah. Doing it for, for he's, he's Joe's son. But, but the way it was, you yeah. know, the way it was set up, it would have been pretty easy for. For Harry or Cisco or someone to come up with a, you know a way to double cross Zoom in some way because he was you know he wasn 't exactly acting all that suspiciously, so he could have just you know could have believed what they were doing and then got himself double crossed in some way mm-hmm.
2: yeah I, I i completely agree, so like it's, you know and isn't it convenient how suddenly oh, i can 't remember the name of the character um the the one that Barry fancies and he's been in love with all iris. the time iris. iris. How, how Iris, you know, suddenly tells tells him that she feel that that she's got feelings for him and she loves him, and then he dies or goes into pocket universe. Well, that's,
0: I mean, that's Iris for you. You know, when there's when someone else is a center of attention, she needs to get back into the same attention. That, uh,
3: that and the fact that the the writer suddenly remembered they had to handle all the plot threads in like the three episodes they have left. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you, do you know? I think it'd be good. I think it'd be good if Earbald um, comes back, but not not Airbold, but sort of like Airbold's great 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 grandson, her ex boyfriend, and he he sort of like somehow turn into a flash and he comes back and snips her throat. <sighs> wow, that, that's
0: that'd be, dark.
2: That'd be good, <laughs> wouldn't it?
0: I don't think that's going to happen.
2: Yeah, but it'd be pretty cool. Uh,
0: I don't know. I don't think that's really flash material, really. But, um, mm. I like to. I like how they gave Iris something to do in that episode, and she was essentially you know, she was acting as a sort of relay between um, Cisco and Barry, so, you know, it reminded me of Galaxy Quest where, uh, what's her name, Sigourney Weaver's character was re- repeating the computer. Mm. So yes. That's what Iris does now, she just, you know, repeats what other people are saying.
2: Yeah, she's kind of like Aurora on Star Trek. <laughs> heli frequencies open. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> like, like one of them. Um, you know, I'm sort of like, uh, I'm kind of like teasing about the smitten in the throat sort of thing, but... <laughs> You know, I I just think that'd be, you know, it'd be funny for something like that to actually happen and then then they all all have to suddenly go back in time or something or, you know, to try and prevent it from happening. Oh, you know, but it's just, um, it just kind of annoys me that.
0: Mm-hmm. Iris
2: doesn't seem to really be doing that much.
0: No, they haven't really got much for it, to do. You? But his body, it's Barry that's annoying me more at the moment, just because he's acting so stupidly. Every everything he does is stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, well, part of the speed, stupid. You know, what part you of the mean? problem.
3: Is, it, part of the problem is they've got to fill twenty three episodes. If they chopped it, to, if they chopped it to a, a cable length season, they wouldn't have to make all of these plot contrivance mandated decisions.
0: Yeah, but I think season one was on the whole tighter, especially at this point in the season. True, true. It kind of knew what story it was telling and where it was going, but now, you know and I think that Barry loses his speed arc is fine. I think in principle that's fine and I get the whole noble sacrifice thing, but the you know, the, the mechanics of it aren't very good. So, you know, Barry gives up his speed to save one person without considering what he's you know what he's doing to the rest of the city, you know, leaving it unprotected while this even faster madman is kicking about. Mm. You know, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, every policeman that died in that episode was essentially Barry's fault.
2: Yeah, I thought the hologram thing was a bit of a stupid idea as well.
0: That was okay. I mean, it was a science fiction thing. It was, you know, it was pretty creative. Yeah. I mean, you could have the Flash in an episode where there was no Flash. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah And and I could have Flash in in an episode Where he uh, Goes Goes to uh, Is it Central City Star City It's Star City Starling
0: Starling City As it was I
2: think I think the Flash Is Central City Yeah Yeah.
3: Flash is Central City Arrow is Star City Yeah
2: but I, I think it'd be funny if he if he winds up in Central City and it's completely div- devoid of knife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in this sort of like uh, trying to figure out what's going on for but that wouldn't that, that wouldn't be a good
0: episode. Uh, I wonder. I, I wonder why, with all the you know, with Barry being out of commission, why Cisco wasn't trying to up his abilities.
2: Yeah, and that's what that's what I was kind of wondering. I mean, it's sort of like um, Cisco's kind of scared of his abilities, though, isn't he? Not anymore, no. really. He got over it. He, he got over it a little bit, but I think there's still a bit of the uh, the anxiety
0: there. I think they should have at least brought it up, though. You mm-hmm. know, since I don't have my speed, maybe we could work on your powers and see if you can do something.
2: Yeah, good. maybe we could use Vibe.
0: They
2: yeah, could have talked about it, if not done anything about it. Well, mm. you know, sort of like, um, so we're left with the, the thrash being being shot out into the middle of nowhere, into, into into a pocket universe.
0: I'm thinking it would just be inside the speed force that's happened. In the-
2: I,
3: I did yes. like the fact that his, once he transformed into the lightning at the end, it was his transformed lightning that transformed uh, Jesse and. and uh, Wally. So I, that's kind of a, an interesting exercise in narrative economy.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, you know if they'll be in a coma until sometime during season three.
3: I'm wondering. I'm actually wondering if this is a structural thing if they don't even notice that they're lying in the hallway until the end of this next episode. <laughs> yeah,
0: keep, you know they just keep walking around them. Just-
2: <laughs> I'm wondering if Wongy might, might 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 gain some powers because Wongy West in in the comics is a flash, isn't he? Yeah, I yeah. think they're.
3: And and, and uh, Jesse is supposed to become Jesse Quick, the, the yeah. girl's piecer Although when the... um,
0: you know when Barry got hit by the lightning, he was in a coma for nine months. Yes, so, you know if they suddenly wake up fully powered, it will be like oh, what's going on here?
2: Yeah, yeah, but I think they they had to put Barry in a coma for nine months because they needed nine months to make the series from from yeah. the point of view where when of when they introduced him in in, in Arrow. Yeah,
0: and the thing that concerns me is you know. If Wally and Jesse wake up with their powers fully intact, then how are you going to make a how are you going to make a feasible threat in a show that has three hero speedsters?
3: Well, I'm assuming that Jesse and Harry will eventually go back to Earth too. Yeah,
0: well, see? maybe not because is Tom Cavanaugh not re- reappearing in next season? This is true. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, they'll
3: they'll figure it out. I
2: hope Tom I hope Tom Cavanaugh is back for another season because I really like him. He's I awesome. He's, I think he's I think he's really good
0: sometimes they have enough problems making villains seem threatening when it's just Barry so if you've got three speedsters what can they not do you know mm,
3: and I, I, I really hope they don't spend the half of next season depowering one or the other because the whole depowering storyline while, while, while structurally logical once isn't something they can just keep repeating yeah so
2: mm-hmm. do you think they've actually maybe blown uh, what by using time travel too much this
3: season they might have yeah I think in the show's short
0: history they've used it a bit too much but I think this season it's been it's been largely okay I mean it's only really been twice Um, I felt that one of the weakest episodes of the season was the time travel one but that was just because as soon as Barry gets back to the past you know that one year ago time you know the first thing he does is change stuff even though he was told not to Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know oh by the way Pied Piper's going to escape because of this mega hearing aid he's got so let's remove it from him it's like well, you know it works out okay, so
3: Yeah. Why? <laughs> well the whole point of that was just to redeem Pied Piper by the end, so Yeah, yeah
2: because Pied Piper ended up helping him in the other universe get, get 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 Barry back, didn't he? Yeah.
0: Yeah, but who's um yeah, he hasn't been seen since. <laughs> True. Despite the fact it made it look like, Oh look, they're he's on the team now. Yeah, they're best of mates. <laughs> and he was like, Oh yeah guys, I gotta go. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves and then he's never seen again. Yep. Um, So, moving off of
2: the Flash uh, onto Arrow um, and... In, um, was that Selma Hyatt that was training?
3: No, no, it was a look. It was a lookalike. I don't I don't know the actress's name, but she's interesting. I hope we see her again.
2: Yeah, yeah, she, she's she's really really interesting.
3: I would love to see, considering that she and Constantine are friends. I would love an episode with them together because it's obvious they've got ma- major history.
2: No, I just Good. want an episode with her. You know, keep Constantine out of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's one of those, well, let's name drop Constantine as many times as we can in one episode.
2: No, I'm not I'm not sharing her with Constantine. It's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> She's mine.
3: Well, I'm, I'm actually just hoping that they get Constantine back. I'm hoping this leads up to him coming back at some point. I want him on Legends.
0: I would, I would like it if it was a surprise appearance in the finale or something, but it would have been leaked by now.
3: Yeah, it would have. Because <laughs> <clears throat> because if, <clears throat> if they couldn't keep Laurel's grave a secret, they can't keep Constantine coming back a secret. Yeah. So...
2: Mm, yeah was am i the only one here that was kind of like a little bit cut up that 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 diggle had to um off his brother I
0: thought that, was that really hurt. well done.
3: That, that that hurt and that was the part of the episode that that really worked uh well i diggle being diggle um is gonna is gonna beat himself up way more than he should Absolutely. he doesn't he he doesn't owe anybody anything he's been put through the ringer
2: yeah, I, I, yeah sure. I just felt really bad for him when he had to off his brother. You know, I just I was, like...
3: I, I was more, I was shocked though by the fact that things were so desperate that he's got his little toddler on the back of his motorcycle. That was not safe.
0: Yeah.
3: Um. But other than that, yeah, were, the, the problem are you was,
2: he's his little toddler was probably enjoying it. It's probably going
3: Wee! <laughs> <laughs> She's be when she grows up. Yeah,
0: <laughs> definitely. I think yeah, I mean it was all really well done, but I think the part of the issue is with with Andy. We don't know the character well enough to. You know, because there were some hints that he might have been trying to break his programming or he wanted Diggle to kill him. So
3: yeah, you don't could... You don't know how much of it was the programming and how much of it was just Diggle being a douche. Yeah,
0: you know? I think mm-hmm. um, I think if they'd spent a bit more time putting Andy as part of the team for a little bit to make the betrayal really work, then, you know, his his motivations would have been a lot stronger. Mm.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so
2: you just saw Mike, I was just really, uh, really, ringy really upset for Diggle. <laughs> That he had to off his brother. Yeah, I
3: I, I want uh, Audrey Marie Anderson, who plays Mrs. Diggle, to become a regular because she every time she comes up, she is awesome.
0: She more or less is. I mean, well, she well, she she's, she's, sure she's more prominent than than
3: say Laurel
2: was for much of this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's an article uh, posted um, on on Digital Spy. uh like uh, the the actor that plays Arrow um he was basically asked the question will will black canary be coming back and he said no no um yeah but you know i think
0: he's probably lied before maybe he doesn't know
3: yeah it could be he doesn't know and the other thing is they they could be waiting to see how bad the backlash is because if it's bad enough they'll bring her back and they mm-hmm. and they and they've got the black siren out on flash so
2: yeah yeah but i you mean know, you know it's all like it, they don't have to bring Gorong and though, don't they? They could have another. They could have another person embodied Black Canary. Well, I
0: think. I, mean, they, I like, think they will definitely have another Black Canary on the team at some point. I mean, whether it's, it's a young one or not is another.
2: They're, they're
3: apparently bringing back the young one at least once more this season. Whether she's going to stay beyond that is beyond. Is uh, I don't know. Mm.
2: So. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering what's going to happen now with the uh, the Felicity Smoke thing. If they're, if they're going to so sort of like just. Just agree to differ and just remain friends, or if they're, if, if they're gonna get back together again, you know. So sort of like, uh, I, I I do I, know,
3: I, I do know that her father's coming back.
2: Yeah, well, I'm. I'm just so sort of like, you know, the longer she stays in a series, the the more threat there is of her getting back together with uh with with, with, with the guy, isn't there? You know. Yeah.
0: The, I, the thing I, is, at this point, I, I couldn't give two craps about the relationship anymore. It's just no. it's laid out so heavily that I cannot be bothered with it and I actually thought the oral Oliver and Felicity scenes in the latest episode were really good.
3: They were good yes. because
0: they were just, you know, it was just the two of them having a bit of fun and, you know, a bit of a a, a lighter
3: setting,
0: you know, and it, it reminded me of some
2: of their sort of heists in season one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Before all this nonsense started. Well, yeah, and so I thought, I thought, it was, you know, that the scenes with the uh, with the Selma Hyatt lookalike, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure Selma Hyatt was meant to be in the series, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Not that I know of. Mm-hmm. I thought I heard something a while back that, that she was going to be guesting, but obviously they they decided to hire a, a lookalike, mm-hmm. which I don't mind at all because she, she was a good mucknike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... You know, obviously I'd rather have Selma Hayek, but, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, settle for, I'll settle for scrappy seconds, but yeah. <laughs> sorry, that's <laughs> bad, that's that's bad the enough. Problem.
0: The problem with those scenes was, you know, it was another one of those sort of heavily truncated lessons, wasn't it? You know, she have got this, um, Oliver needs to learn something that probably takes people years to master, but he somehow figures it out in half an hour. Yeah. And it was the whole, OK, we've tried this once and you failed, so uh, we're not trying again.
2: And then, then when it comes to an actual battle scene with David yeah. and dark, he's sort of, all of a sudden, conveniently, he's figured it out.
0: Yeah, if there'd been an episode, even as a delay, with before he decide, he manages to figure it out. You know. Maybe if Dark had almost killed him in that episode, and Diggle saves him or something, mm. and then the yeah. next episode or a couple of episodes later, he manages to he manages to overcome it because he realises what he needs to do. Yeah, it would have been better. It would have been more earned, I think.
3: Maybe I, I, I was glad to see that there was finally some momentum with uh, whatever's going on with Thea and political operative guy.
0: So, <sighs> Blunt, what, Blundy, whatever his name is. <laughs> Yeah. It's not his fault, but you
3: know. No, it's not.
0: Fernando and, Maci D. And,
3: and he certainly got more charisma than the um, than the uh, League of Assassins
0: um, of oh, the
2: DJ. DJ. Guy. Yeah, the DJ. Guy. <laughs> he was he was dreadful. Yeah. What was he? You know. Yeah, he's got about as much charisma as tree bark, hasn't he? Yeah.
0: Mm. I think um, I actually liked the Twilight Zone episode that Theo was in, and I yeah. wanted to see more of it. It probably will this week, yeah, so... Although, no, I mean the whole, I wanted to see more of the, something seems strange about this. You know? Yeah. Because um, what we saw of it was pretty good, but it maybe should have twinned with another story rather than from the three stories. Yeah, mm. yeah. At least there wasn't a flashback.
3: No, thank you, God. Um... <laughs> Yeah. Those need to go
2: away so badly. That's why yeah. I wanna. That's why I wanted to wanted to ask. You know, we so Barry got these lessons about how to deal with Damien Dark's magic. Whereas so Oliver. I, Oliver, Oliver, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Whereas the the uh, flash, whereas you know the flashbacks are dealing with someone else. But so I managed to obtain that sort of power. Why did he not learn? That stuff back then. Presumably, Why, finds oh, another
0: way of stopping. Oh god, I can't remember the guy's name. Ryder. yeah, him. Uh, presumably, he finds another way. You know, maybe locking him, locking him in a
3: cave or something
0: like that. Yeah, presumably,
2: it's the same it's, idol, isn't
3: it? Yes, yeah, the same idol. It yeah, is.
2: So. You know, maybe, maybe it's something to do with the amount of time that the uh, that the practitioner has spent with the idol, as in to how strong the connection is, yeah. or something like that. But it's just sort of like um, it. It just. It just—it's just gnawing at me, you know. How, how come he didn't sort of like? How come come he didn't go study study? You know, preventative magic back then. Yeah, you know, and, and there's what, all sorts
0: of problems with the flashbacks and them not actually mirroring the present day at all. Mm. That, that's just it,
2: because that, that's why the flashbacks work so well in the first and second season, whereas yeah. sort of like the, the, the previous two seasons that they, they—they they, just—they're just not needed.
0: No, you know. It's, it's just it's just stupid. I mean, taking him off the island in season 3 was the first mistake, I think. Mm. You know,
3: they ran out of island stories. That was the double-edged sword.
0: Yeah, so I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is, but they're not going anywhere anyway. There's going to be more of them next season. Than yeah. Loki, you know. Hopefully Russia. not beyond that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
2: finally, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Hive the Badass.
0: Yes. <laughs> Hive is probably the third best Marvel Cinematic Universe villain after Loki Fisk Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah so no, far Hive,
3: as... Hive did not start out promising but at this point he's awesome
0: yeah
3: and it's, and his flaws make him awesome because you, you can you can tell that this is an alien life form. He may have started out as a human being, but he was a prehistoric human being yeah. who became an alien life form and his his thought processes are just not the same. yeah and, just,
0: uh, I love it how he couldn't even contemplate the concept of trial and error.
3: No, the concept that they would they would fail on the first try never even entered his collective yes.
0: brains. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm impressed with the uh, with, with the the actor that's playing him. You know, I know it's the same guy that plays Grant Ward. I forget his name. Right yeah, but you know, he's sort of like he's he, he's managing to con- convey a completely different character in hive. And he's doing it pretty well as well. You know, he's changed. He's changed the intonation of his voice. Um, he's using much more clipped pronunciations of his
0: words. It's also when that. he decides to bring out one of his consumed selves. You know, he does a really good job of that as well. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean yeah, he hasn't really I, played anybody we know well yet, but it could happen. You yeah.
3: know, no. And one of the creepiest scenes, though, is is when poor Simmons found him. Found herself confronted by him, and he switches into Will. Yeah, and it's like, oh god, this is going to suck.
0: Yeah, we didn't know Will well enough to know how well he was doing as a um, mm. as an impression. So it's no, but sight, you know, yeah, yeah man,
3: I, I think what's interesting is part part of why I've read that part of why they did this was that they were loath to part to part with Brett Dalton because they liked yeah. the actor so much. And they, they knew that he had range. And, and he has range, because in the first season, he played a different version of Grant Ward than we got in season two. Yeah. So he's, he's effectively played three different characters.
2: Yeah, but this, this, this third one, you know, in Hive, is the most different he's ever gone, because... It, oh, no, it's,
3: it's, it, it's, it's, massive.
2: The it's Grant, massive. The Grant Ward in the second season, he was just sort of like slightly, slightly moved on from the Grant Ward we've seen in the first season. There wasn't really too much differentiating
0: the two. Well, season two was the real Grant Ward, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was, you know, he was playing a, a part throughout his time in Shield in the first
2: season. Yeah, and if you look back to the first season, you look look, look at how perfect Grant Ward was during those first initial episodes. Yeah. You, you know, you kind of, you know, you look at it now in hindsight, and you kind of think, "Ah, so that that must be why he was so perfect in the first couple of episodes," because that was one of the criticisms that the first se- se- season got. Was was yeah. character Grant Ward? He was just a little bit too perfect.
0: Well, yes. the Ward was was great in the pilot because Josh Whedon was writing him. Mm-hmm. You know, because he was he was kind of this. Uh, well, he wasn't quite a loose cannon, but he was this sort of snarky. You know, really couldn't be bothered with with Coulson and his nonsense sort of guy. You know, and then he sort of got a bit blander after Whedon's brother took over. Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah. So we're, we're now slating, uh We're Jed Whedon's writing.
0: Well, mm-hmm. compared to compared to Joss Whedon, I think if, a, if Jed Whedon had written the pilot, it mm. might have been less noticeable. But, you mm. know, it's like it's like night and day between episodes one and two. Mm. You know, all of the characters all pretty much are. You
2: know, it might might be might be interesting if uh, Jed Whedon did an Agents of Shield version of the Bethany is. Mm-hmm.
0: Sorry,
2: that's no, not like. Right, but... I don't know where that came from maybe, <laughs> maybe, it, was <laughs> <laughs> maybe um, it was Jed maybe it was the Jed Whedon you know Jed Campit Jed Whedon <laughs> sort of yeah. um, what is this weird
0: trend on television at the moment though, of characters like switching names as, as shows go on you know I mean we've had uh, obviously Sky turning into Daisy
2: yeah that um, only happened because um, Rupert Murdoch threatens Sue <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Ward is um, you know Ward is obviously now high in The Flash you've got Harrison Wells, Eobard Thawne, and so on. You know, it's just, yeah. um, there are well, so many examples of this. It's It's a it's a
3: it's a it's a side effect of, of narrative economy. Yeah. You have characters that become other characters because they just, they can't afford separate actors playing those other characters. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's fine because it changes things up, interest, in interesting yeah. ways. You know, when you're reviewing something and suddenly you have to call something someone something else. Yeah. Like, um, you know, when I went from having called Hank Jean in super, yes. you know, no, it, it, it is.
3: It takes it takes a toll.
0: It takes there was about half a season where I was just calling him
2: Jean, even though he was playing Hank all the time. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you know. So, what about Daisy kicking kicking the guy's ass? Um What's the name now? The the big guy, the Cree. No, no yeah. Mac. Oh Mac. Mac. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. she's slightly like, smaller guy. Just,
2: just slightly smaller than the Cree guy, but you know. Uh talking, which I'm we'll going be watching Creed later on, but that's
0: another conversation. Same. But the, Gla- Yeah, Mac has a bit of a glass jaw, though, doesn't he? He's always getting knocked out.
2: Yeah, he, yeah. Could, he seems to be the uh, the go-to agent to shield punch bag,
0: doesn't he? It's a bit like a Worf in The Next Generation, you know. We'll, we'll knock down the big guy to prove how powerful we are. But mm. since it happens every week, they're not very powerful anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, the
2: thing is, Worf could actually kick ass. No, in The Next
0: Generation he couldn't. Did he not? No, he would always run at the alien that invades the bridge and get knocked over, just to show how powerful this alien was. Mm,
2: yeah, but they, they, did have a, they did have the the episodes in Next Generation, you know, Sins of the Father and and the stuff with Doris and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, Where, but on the whole, Worf was there to show how strong the enemies were. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if anybody can knock them over, he ain't that strong.
2: Yeah, so Wolf was basically nothing more than a plot device. Yeah,
0: Max a bit like that. You know, yeah. every time an enemy shows up, they'll they'll knock him out because you know he's the biggest guy there. I tell you what, I've not been
2: missing. I've not really missed the. Uh, I've not really missed Mockingbird since since Seven
0: Left. No,
3: I haven't really felt
0: it. You know, i not. It's, I think it's because the rating's been so strong since then. You know, they've the filled in the gaps. But I think um, there were definitely situations over the past few episodes where I was like, oh, man, how useful would Hunter be right here?
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually liked Hunter better than Mockingbird because he was kind of like a two-faced, shifty character.
0: Yeah, although the, um, the spin-off is on Thin Ice again, isn't it? Mm. I'm sure we're reading work, that yeah. they, they might
2: not pick it up, so that's annoying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like uh, it's it kind of made it even more annoying in, in, by the fact that they might actually find it find it, find a way to actually justify bringing them back into Shield.
0: Well, I think they'll have to if if it falls apart, mm. which will be you know, which is weird because you've got this episode where they leave and then they're just back the next season or whatever.
2: Yeah, and all of a sudden when they come back the next season, they're no longer the most wanted people in America.
0: Yeah, they'll have to do some kind of.
2: Um, I don't know. So some kind of oh yeah, we've uh, cleared them of all charges for some
0: reason. Yeah,
2: some some kind of weird retcon <laughs> thing. Yeah. You know. Um but I, I sort of like um uh, I I watched episode nineteen. That's that's one of the reasons I, I, I was late starting this because I wanted to you know, I, I'd i basically been doing some updates for to for for the site and I finished those and I looked at the I looked at the time, it was like quarter past seven, thought, oh well, better get a pizza and watch Agents of Shield. <laughs> so that's why I was a bit late. it wasn't because I was doing anything important <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to watch the, last, the the latest episode so I could be caught up
0: yeah. so, I think. They've, been, um, they've actually been quite clever in you know, how the Hive has his little town that he runs, because you know, it keeps everything kind of out of the, the events of civil war in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. you know, yeah. if you suddenly had Cree coming to Earth in the middle of a populated area, I'm pretty sure that would get Tony Stark's attention
2: Okay, well, how yes. how does it tie in? Does it tie into Civil War at all, at all this next series? This,
3: this coming week, we get Yeah, the,
0: there'll probably be a scene where it ties in in some way, and then they'll ignore it after
2: that. Okay, yeah. well, I'm actually going to see Civil War on Wednesday. I'm I'm,
3: I'm renting it. I am. Um, I've decided it's not important enough to actually go to
2: the theater for. Mm, um, you know, I've seen the other two in the theater. I'll see this one in the theater.
0: I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm, well, the new Spider Man is is great.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of looking... I've, I've heard a lot of good things about Black Panther as well, the way they yeah. introduced Black Panther's done really, really well. So. Yeah, it's,
0: it's almost to the point where I'm not sure if its origin film's going to be about, because mm. they've done it. Yeah, it's a bit know? like a bit like the
2: Punisher thing in, uh, in, 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 in Daredevil. They've kind of done his origin story as well.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how well the Punisher can carry a TV series because he is incredibly violent. And, you know, watching... It's going to be hard to sympathise with him if you have to watch him just his way through criminals for 13
2: episodes well you know I, 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 um I've read I've read the comics and I completely sympathize with him you know yeah if, if anything I just don't think he's violent enough he sort of like needs to go a bit further
0: I'm imagine he will in his own series
2: you know maybe sort of like uh, plug a in and sort of like stick it over the top of someone's head and put it on full speed <laughs> you know <laughs> that's pretty sick <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cartoony as well <laughs> yeah yeah
0: I'm...
2: But yeah, so like, um, I'm all caught up on Supergirl as well, so if you want to quickly talk about that, um, as it's in been, the last
0: episode, up to the yeah, last episode.
2: I'm not to so the last episode. Um, I've, I've still got the final two, but I've seen the Flash and Supergirl crossover. That was the last one I seen, and I really that, enjoyed that. That
3: crossover may be what saves the series in whatever form they do it in, if they do it. Mm.
0: And yeah, it's all over the place right now, isn't it? Like every day, there's a different, slightly written story about you know where it's going or what's going on, and
3: I was I was scared when I saw the three million price tag. I'm like, no wonder they're having issues. Yeah, it's three
0: million just to use her, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um I think it, they might as well just put it on the CW. Why not? Like,
3: they either need to put it on the CW or if they don't want to ma- maintain the whole show anymore, they need to at least salvage Kara and Martian Manhunter and move them over into a crisis storyline across the other three series.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, in order to save money, they're going to have to move the show to Canada. I don't think, I don't think they've got, really got any choice in that. Uh, but
3: Calista is not going to move to Canada.
2: Well, yeah. you know, she's not really that important to the series anyway.
3: A lot, of without think, a lot of people think she is.
2: She's
0: one of the best characters, I think. But I think the show could survive without her. Mm, yeah. It just force them to do something else with someone else.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people that think she is are, are all am at Beale fans anyway, so...
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, I, I I was never on side with with, with them having Conista out in it anyway. Yeah. Um, I just couldn't see the point of it, to be honest. But then, I when I, I seen it, the character
0: in the pilot, but I think she got much better as it went on.
2: Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sort of agreeing with you here. When, when I seen it, I thought, hmm she's kind of like the uh, female version of Perry White, but without the Elvis fixation. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: and, and I kind of thought, yeah, I, I kind, I kind of like her, but I, I you know, I don't think she's needed.
0: No, yeah. I think she worked as a mentor figure in the first season, certainly. Mm-hmm. But it's maybe at the point where Cara doesn't need that figure anymore. Yeah, I mean, she's
2: got she's probably got a better mentor figure in in, in the form of John John Jones.
3: I love him so much. Harewood owns it. Yeah, but
2: yeah is, I think is, he's I think he's really good. Is he another actor that's not going to move to Canada if they move? Because you know he's
3: he, he, he's British.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. I know he's British, but does he have family in the states or something?
3: Ah, uh, you know that's that's going to be
2: because the you know the,
0: most of these actors they're jobbing actors, right? So they'll just kind of go where the work is.
2: Mm. But Miss McCart doesn't need to because she's sort of like um, she's Mrs. Harrison Ford. She's Mrs. So. Mrs. Harrison yeah. Ford. So she's it's not much. Like oh, she, she,
0: if she decides to move with a production, if it moves, then it will be entirely up to her. I think the yeah. other actors will go because they'll want to, you know. Yeah.
2: Because um, at
0: the end of the day, it's a steady gig for a while. Yeah.
2: They have to live in Canada for a few months, then fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so like um, there's all sorts of, um, you know, the thing, thing is one of the reasons other than the three million price tag is apparently CBS were hoping to get some sort of tax break by, by, by filming the series in, in LA. And what, what happened is apparently they applied for this tax break and didn't get it. And didn't get it. That, and that get surprised it. me too. And that surprised me big time. You know, it's so like it's really, really worrying that, you know, on on the one hand, the move into Canada, it's great for the Canadian economy, but what about the U.S. economy? You know, so like you've got all these shows moving to Canada because things are so screwed up in the States that they can't, you know, with tax laws, but like they can't afford to hardly film
0: anything. Yeah. It's I just think, mad. Yeah. I think it, it is shows. Sure. If the show's made on a CW budget, I think it'll be fine because they pull off some pretty impressive visuals on the flash. I just think their location shooting will probably not be as strong. Yeah, I mean so like Which um, is fine by me, to be honest. Yeah, I mean
2: they they could always so like um, someone mentioned that, you know, everything filmed in Vancouver it always looks like it's filmed on an overcast day, sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and so like, did um, do not watch Misfits? <laughs> you know, it's overcast here in the UK all the time. Sort of well, thing.
0: I mean, Arrow has a visual identity because it's um, dark all the time. You know, they don't, they're not out in the day very often. And Flash is visually interesting because it is out during the day most of mm-hmm. the time. So Supergirl would probably be more like Flash, visually speaking. Yeah, I,
2: mean, mm. I, I kind of hope it does move to the CW, to be honest, because it'd be fun to see more crossovers done. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, may, maybe what could happen is um, it, with the move to CW, you know, she finds out that the that that, 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 that Barry Angan she met is a different Barry Allen to the one that's actually in her universe. Yeah, well, I mean,
0: he must... Well, he says that he Googled all the, the people that he knows and they're not... He couldn't find them, but it could just be that they're not famous mm-hmm. in, in the way that they are, in you know, in his world. Yeah, so, so, yeah, it could just be this some random CSI working in Central City...
2: Yeah, so maybe maybe in the Supergirl universe, all the stuff with the Flash and Arrow hasn't actually happened yet. Sort of yeah. thing. So, so, so maybe what they could do is they could end up rebooting Supergirl, only it's sort of like rebooted and it's actually in the same universe as the Flash and Arrow, and that saves them having to sort of like explain the Flash crossover episode away.
0: Well, I mean the um, the producers have been running their mouths off about potential crossovers next season. They would introduce um, a different version of Kara into theirs into their universe in some way
2: yeah I mean it's, it'd, it'd, be, it'd be fun to see and, and interesting to do I mean an episode I loved I loved the episode where Kara breaks bad because of the red kryptonite yes. yeah that was and really good that was a much more interesting version of Kara than the, the goody two shoes one <laughs> you know I, I actually liked that girl and I thought that's the sort of girl you can take home to mum <laughs> <laughs> I'm you not know? sure you know
0: the <laughs> of insanity that keeps building
2: <laughs> but yeah, I I kind I kind of um I'm I'm liking what I've seen of Supergirl and um you know I'm it's still not it's still not my favourite show.
0: It's still not those feel compelled to watch it, you know, I just and I really want it to be better and there's like and there's kind of little hints of the show that's in there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's hints of a great show in there, they're just not quite getting it
2: yeah maybe if they move maybe if they move it to the cw they, they you, you know become a bit more tighter and cohesive
0: yeah or the sort of or the love story crap gets even worse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well
2: yeah there is that um i mean you know sort of like uh, the whole jimmy olson thing yeah i mean why Hmm. It, that just you know, I, I kind of I kind of love the fact that that in the final moments of that episode, before before episode nineteen, you know, she's that they're, they're they're finally getting together, and all of a sudden, Jimmy Olsen is taken over by non, yeah. yeah, by non. It's,
0: it's a good
2: job Barry didn't hang around for an
0: extra twenty minutes or so, isn't
2: it? It is, mm-hmm. you know. He's, he he got out there just in the, just just in the nip of, t- nip of time, but then again. <laughs> yeah. Then again, maybe maybe his DNA, with him being from a different parallel universe, would have been slightly different to the human no, DNA that No, no, if it universe. doesn't
0: affect Superman, then it won't affect... <laughs> it would be, you know, if it affects Superman, it will affect him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought it was funny how sure Barry was that he was going to get back to his own universe, though. It's like, oh, yeah, if we go fast enough, I'll go back. But yeah. how does he know he's not going to go to another universe? Whereas
2: normally he needs, he needs a reassurance from Cisco and, um, and, and, and the, the other guys to, you know... And he needs that reassurance from them to, before he can actually, you know, whereas this flash that came into into Supergirl's universe, he was a little bit too sure of himself.
0: Well, in a lot of ways, that's the barrier we never get to see, you know, that he, and maybe it's because he knows he has a support system. When he doesn't have one, he's, you know, he thinks outside the box and he gets himself, you know, he gets into problem solving mode and he figures out a way. You know, but he doesn't do that on his in his own show because other people do it for him.
3: Because they have to have roles for the other people in the cast. Yeah,
0: yeah Otherwise, Barry's just the super genius that you know talks at people while they stand around and do nothing.
3: Yeah, and they can't they can't have that. It's it's a structural no no. So yeah, gonna...
0: mm-hmm. but it'd be you know it'd be quite funny if uh, Barry had been pretty wrong about getting back to his own universe and he just starts running through you know.
2: All sorts of things. He winds up. He winds up in <laughs> eighteen twelve in some random country somewhere.
0: Yeah, or just turns up in like Grey's Anatomy or something. Because <laughs> <And, laughs> you imagine just you know a normal episode of that, people are getting rushed out of the operating room, and then you know Barry shows up in his costume, <laughs> just like God. Oh, where am I?
2: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a no. Sounds like an episode of Saint elsewhere.
0: Yeah. He could turn. He could turn up in Gotham, I suppose.
2: Yeah, that, that, that would be doable, but it's like, um, again, it's that, you know, NBC thing, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I think any deal's possible. I think if they really wanted to get The Flash or Green Arrow in, in Gotham, they could. But, I don't know. The the Bruce Wayne in that show's got enough inspiring that would beat Batman as it is. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. No, that's...
2: Yes. I must Gotham go... doesn't make sense. I must yeah. go off with Catwoman and give rough for a few weeks so I can get into the mindset of Criminal Element.
0: I mean, could you imagine if Oliver Queen showed up? It's like, oh, cool, this guy is, like, dealing justice from the shadows. I could do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's what they need to do. They need to have Ollie Queen show up in Gotham yeah. to become a role model for young Bruce Wayne.
0: He's just, like, not crazy about the bow and arrow, but, you
2: know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and and the green suit kind of looks a bit, you know... Nah. Looks a bit naff. Make, makes him look a bit like a, like a homo or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is me being ironic because Batman wearing those rubber sort of like hat, that rubber armor, yeah. <laughs> especially if, especially if you're sort of like going back to the the film where they had nipples on their suits. <laughs> yeah, they're <laughs> oh, they
0: forgotten. I like... think. Mm,
2: yeah, I think I think there's loads and loads of people still having nightmares about that to this day. <laughs>
0: I don't know, I think it's quite a funny film. As long as you treat it as a Batman comedy, then you know it works pretty well, actually. Mm, yeah, and so like,
2: um, you know, it would have been funny if they'd, so like, um, if they'd went through a time portal at the end and bumped into Adam West and Ward. Yeah. <laughs>
0: actually, I thought Mr. Freeze was handled really well on Gotham. Mm-hmm. It's a shame he's kind of been benched. Yeah, but I'm sure he'll be back. They'll find a oh, way to bring him to be, back. Yeah. And I haven't seen the Asriel episode yet, but I've seen the picture. He looks pretty mm.
2: cool. Yeah, I mean, I was a bit pissed off that they killed off the uh, that, that sort of, like, uh, character right at the beginning of the season, the one that was kind of like channeling the Joker. Jerome. Jerome. I um, thought he was really good.
0: I'm yeah, he- but Hugo Strange can bring him back, I suppose, if he wants. Mm. Mm-hmm. He seems to be the kind of, I guess, the Dr. Frankenstein of the show. Mm-hmm. Okay, well,
2: um, it's time for the interview now with Arvind um, Ethan David. Um, as always, Risa, uh, Craig, thanks for coming on.
3: Pleasure, oh, you're welcome. It's, it's, it's been, been fun.
2: It's been great catching up on things, and hopefully, I'm caught up on a few of the other shows the next time, in in a couple of weeks' time. But now it's time for Avind, uh, Ethan, David, the executive producer of the new forthcoming Dirt Junkie series. <laughs> I'd like to welcome Avin Ethan David to the show. He's a um, very exciting writer and producer. He's done a lot of stuff and um, he's going to be talking to us about a few of his real exciting projects, which, which he has going on. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: Okay. well, the first question I have, and I kind of like to ask this to a lot of people, is what was it that sparked your journey into producing for movies and television?
4: Um, you know, I, my answer is both, is both kind of interesting and boring. I mean, the the boring part is I don't think I ever really imagined doing anything else. Um, it's, you know, I always knew from a very young age that the thing I was, the thing I enjoy more than anything was storytelling, whether that was just literally telling people stories, um, or acting in plays or putting on plays. Um, and um, you know, and it started with comics. You know, I, I my earliest memories of enjoying reading were, were with comics. Dad, uh, he used to be a lawyer, uh, um, but a very serious man, uh, and worked very long hours. But the thing I remember as a kid, but that was his sort own of little secret guilty pleasure, was he would come home from the office and out of his leather, uh, lawyer's briefcase would be comics from the comic store. And that was also a very happy moment as a little, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, waiting for him to come back to see what comics he would he had bought. Um, so I think it's all I ever imagined I would do was tell you know I didn't know it would be comics and TV necessarily. I grew up in um, I grew up in Malaysia and in London, and those are places where there's a big. Um, you know, com- local comic book industry. Obviously, there is some in London and in the UK, but it's more an American thing, and particularly when I was a kid, uh, you know, 30-something years ago. Um, so I think I thought it would be theatre. And so the first thing I did um, that I guess sort of started my career was I actually, at, at school, uh, in the sixth form, uh, I was invited to direct the school play, and I adapted... Uh, Douglas Adams' Doug Gently Solistic Detective Agency as the school play. Wow. And uh, that was a completely stupid thing to do as a 15 year old. <laughs> uh, you know, I just read the book and it made me very happy, even though I didn't really understand it. But I hadn't read a lot of plays, and it was my intent to direct the school play. And I said, Oh, I'll, I'll adapt this book. It's only got a cast of hundreds, and time travel, and aliens, and horses, and electric monks, and uh, three different parallel universes. Easy, we could put that on the school stage. <laughs> um, but somehow we did, and it made me very happy. I think it made my friends very happy. And I guess that gave me the bug, and ultimately started me on a road that showed, that has ended, uh, not ended I hope, because I'm not dead, but you know, 20 years later, with me writing the comics and producing the TV series of
2: Detective Swimstick Detective Agency, um, yeah, and you've been you've recently been connected with uh, via the Jackie Vader comic books, and um, you have got the new BBC America TV series coming out, um, and you've kind of just answered this question, <laughs> because it, you know, because you know, so asking when when you first became interested, and obviously it was when you was at school, so you know,
4: yeah, I mean, even earlier, you know, I remember. I said comics is where my love started and that's true but in terms of novels I have a very physical memory of reading Hitchhikers for the first time Uh as I think a lot of us do because it was such a lightning bolt of a book and I think I would have been 12 or 13 uh I was in my grandmother's house on the couch I remember the feeling of sunshine on me uh I remember being like 20 pages into this book and just the hair on the back of my neck standing up and going, Oh my god, I did not know books could do this. I didn't know they could be this funny and this rude and this clever and this um I don't think I knew what the word iconplastic meant, but I would use it now. Um and I just thought, oh my god, this is this is it was like and this was Douglas's unique gift. He would talk to you. Um it was like telepathy when the guy mm-hmm. spoke to you. You felt he was beaming his his cleverness. Uh, straight into your brain and you felt smarter because you were thinking like Douglas Adams was thinking. Um, and so, yeah, so it was always, I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those rare and, and lucky cases where the author who made me love sci-fi and made me want to be a writer and a storyteller, um, you know, 20 years later, I get to return to his work and to hopefully bring it to the biggest audience um, that that Dunkirk has ever been brought to um, here in America, so it's a really special privilege. See, it's almost it
2: almost feels like destiny, given that you did it when you was in school, and now you're doing it.
4: Again. <laughs> uh, I like to think of it as hopefully Dunkers would have liked to have thought of it as just an example of the interconnectedness of all things.
2: Mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> Um, talking about the comics for a while, your adaptation of, of, of Dirt it has been massively praised because of the fact that it stays fairly, fairly true to the character in the book. So, was it easy to achieve that with, with the comics? Um, and what, if any, challenges do you think you, you, you're going to face when it comes to the television adaptation?
4: I mean, look, they are, you know, adapting anything, uh, uh, adapting anything good is terrifying and it's hard. You know, I'd much rather be given something a bit shit to adapt, because (laughs) then the pressure on you is much less, and you can just sort of do what you want as long as you have the essence um, there, and and you're not intimidated by what has come before, and as long as your work is good, you, you sort of worry less about living up to somebody else. When you're adapting um, a genius, uh, because Douglas was a genius, um, then the pressure is enormous. And, but in a way, I'm very, very, very glad that we're doing it in different mediums, right? Because at least I'm not writing a novel, a prose novel of Doug Gently, because that would be impossible. Because Douglas was, you know, was amongst the greatest wordsmiths of the 20th century and I wouldn't want to be setting my prose directly next to his. Um, doing it in comics um, uh, freed me up in some ways because I could go, okay, let's be true to the character, um, let's be true to the tone, and to the um, what I call uh, I, the idea play. Uh, you, know, you know, Douglas's humour comes not just from word play or situation play, but it comes from smashing together different ideas whether it's, you know, uh, game theory and fractal physics or um, time travel and uh, music composition, uh, whether it's poetry and um, soul swapping. You know, Douglas would take like two completely or three completely non, um, apparently non-adjacent ideas and smash them into each other. So to give a famous example from Hitchhikers there is the, um, there is the idea that you know a soul can be transferred from one thing to another which is not a new idea lots of lots of, lots of writers and have played with that idea but in Hitchhikers there's a the famous example where he transfers the same soul you know from a pot plant into a blue whale <laughs> and and it creates one of the most um you know moving uh vignettes in those books where this plur this soul ends up in a blue whale two thousand miles above the surface of a planet and you just get to experience its narrative before you before it hits the ground and dies horribly. And it's so moving and it also introduces another passion of diagnosis, which was animals and conservation. So I thought, okay, that's an extraordinary idea. And writing these comics, you know, my arc of the of the comics, the adventure that we're on in a spoon too short includes animal poaching and includes uh, specifically the poaching of rhinos, uh, which is a horrible uh, conservationist tragedy of our time and one that Douglas Adams was very passionate about. He was a uh, founder of the, the Rhino, of the Save the Rhino Foundation, and uh, so it was fun for me to be able to take you know that that that, that arena of conservation and do a direct history in it. And so, you know, and, 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 and in the comics, and it's one of the things that a lot of readers have, you know, tweeted and, and emailed about, and is I give, I give the rhinos an, an internal voice. Um, I let them, I let them speak directly to the audience. Um, and given that all of them end up dying at the end of a poacher's rifle, uh, it's a way of bringing home sort of pathos and tragedy. Of every rhino that is killed. Uh, So it's, you know, I think it's doing things like that and it's finding ways to do things that only comics can do. Um, I'm playing, you know, each issue, and I'm helped in this enormously by uh, Ilias Krianzis, my extraordinarily gifted uh, artist, and Charlie Kershoff, the colorist. We're trying to take ideas that you couldn't do in prose, that you couldn't do um, on TV. Uh, and do them in comics. So in the, um, uh, to, for example, to illustrate the idea of the interconnectedness of all things, we have this sort of running visual trope of a jigsaw. And we show, in a, in a number of moments in the comics, um, things that shouldn't be connected, complicated ideas, complicated plot ideas, uh, being connected like jigsaw pieces. Uh, and there's a, there's a spread in the second issue that I'm really proud of. Uh, that Ilias did amazingly, where we show all the multi, uh, the multifaceted faceted uh, causes of rhino poaching, of the chain of international crime and international e- economics and culture that have led to the epidemic in, in rhino poaching. Uh, but we get to do that in a way that's, you know, hopefully funny and also sad and also visually arresting. So it's doing stuff like that that is how I've kind of taken, I hope, the essence of the character, the essence of of Douglas's writing style, but taking it over to the comic world, rather than trying to ape what he could do in prose, which, frankly, I don't believe anyone else, living or dead, uh, with the possible exception of P.G. Woodhouse, uh, can do in prose. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've actually read... Um, and this, is, this is kind of a little bit different, Dirt uh, but I've actually read quite a few of the original Fleming James Bond novels, when when I was a kid, and I've, sure. and I've recently sort of like read some of the new ones that, that other writers have done, and they they just don't get the essence of the character, um, and it, it's kind of hard as well because they're writing about Bond from a modern perspective, whereas sort of like the actual character was sort of like a complete misogynist and hated women. <laughs>
4: Look, I, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think it's so hard, you know, particularly when you're hitting something with, you know, with, with, I mean. Also, Fleming was a good writer, you know. Again, if you're trying to write, uh, you know, new new chapters of some hack, that's that 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 that's easier. Or someone who's just about plot. Fleming was not just about plot. He's a good writer, and, and there's a reason Bond is such an iconic creation. It plugs into sort of deep psychological need. Uh, I think of the British to see themselves in a particular way. Um, and, and you know, but look, every now and then you find an example, I mean, in Sherlock Holmes, I think they have been a handful of writers who have managed to do something special. Uh, I think Michael Chambon's um, The Final Solution is an incredibly beautiful and moving uh, um, Sherlock Holmes novel, uh, which is both a love letter to Holmes, um, but also... Um, but also uh, a kind of literary novel in the way that Conan Doyle's novels are not, and it is. But it does a very you kind know, of brilliant thing. It doesn't try and write a normal Holmes mystery. It goes forward to his old age, and it's also a meditation on on the final solution uh, of the Second World War and the. Genocide of the, you know, of the Jews or the mm-hmm. mass extermination of the Jews. So it, it does something different and it plugs into uh, Michael Chambon's own interests and preoccupations. He's written very movingly uh, about, uh, you know, about those subjects before um, in Cavalier and Clay uh, and the last Yiddish Policeman's Union. And so he finds ways to do it. So I think every now and then you get an example of someone who does it. Uh, amazingly, but they normally have to be a great, great author, um, and they also need to be doing their own thing rather than just trying to do um, what the original author did. And, you know, I think it's similarly you know, a slight trick of the mind, Mitch Cullen's uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes novel, on which the Ian McKellen, Mr. Holmes is based, again, I think is very, very good. I think sort of less successful uh, Anthony Horowitz. Uh, is someone who has tried to do both James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. And I think his House of, I forget what it's called, House of Silk, I think it's called, is his Sherlock Holmes novel, less successful because he's actually trying to do Conan Doyle. And I think it's always a mistake to try and, you know, impersonate a great author. You have to sort of do yourself mm-hmm. and, and find a way that you can bring something that is true to the character, but that is different from the original's. Uh, and it's yeah, but it's it's terrifying. And as I say, I'm glad that I'm not doing Dirk in prose. I get to do them in in you know comics and in TV. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, how much different would you say it's been for you to work on on the comics and say say write and producing, in The uh,
4: the the joy of the comics is the amount of control you get as a creator. You know, in in TV and in film and in theatre, which is where I spend most of my life. You you know, even if you're the lead writer or the writer director, you're still very dependent. um, You know, in both good ways and bad. uh, And often it's great, but on you know dozens of other people's input and collaboration. And and the the bigger the enterprise, the more true that is. You know, on a on a TV show, you you end up with um, you know a room of writers. Uh, you end up with multiple directors multiple cinematographers um, and there is you know, obviously you know costume and you know just tons and tons and tons of people whose talents uh, and input are valuable and they shape and you, you shape it together uh, and that's a joy uh, but it's a managerial uh, feat mm-hmm. um, and you know we're deep in doing that you know and that's what I do my whole life film and TV Uh, coming to comics I came to comics as a writer late Uh, you know Dirk is my first comic and I have you know almost 20 years experience doing you know other mediums and I've always wanted to write a comic literally it's been a childhood dream of mine but that's not the way my life went my life went with with, um, TV and film and theatre so the incredible joy of of writing a comic is you get to be writer director and producer um, kind of all at once, and to some extent, cinematographer, costume designer, uh, casting director, uh, as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And then your, your artist is your cinematographer, your lighting designer, um, your, um, makeup and, and hair department. And so it's really just the two of you, um, uh, and your kind of three of you with your colorist who make every decision. And so it's, it's so fantastic to be able to go, oh, I don't just write the lines. I get to say how they will be said. I get to say how big the font is and what the font is. I get to say where the speech balloon goes. I get to say the camera angle at which we're looking at him and the expression on his face and what the cut is. You're the editor. I get to say the cut is between one panel and the next. So you're sort of God, which is both wonderful, but of course a little bit terrifying because mm-hmm. it's, it's screw-up going want to blame um, but it is such a wonderful contrast from the um, sort of endless uh, compromises and collaborations of the of almost every other medium so that's been you know that's been the real joy and it's made me I think um, you know very conscious of and, and, and I value all the more the inputs of all my collaborators, in, in TV and film and theater, because when you're making all the decisions yourself, you go, "My God, I have to make a lot of decisions." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, so so that's the big difference. That's the big, um, uh, I think, both the joy and the uh, and the um, sort of deep realization of, of of how the two things are different.
2: Well, I thought that's just occurred to me is you don't have to deal with, um, with with budget budget constraints either.
4: Totally true. Totally true. I can have a cast of thousands. Uh, I move the action, uh, from London to, uh, Kenya, uh, without having to think for a second about what that means for a unit move. Um, I can cast, uh, people of all shapes and sizes and races and, 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 looks without having to think about can we find actors and where would we fly them from and where do we audition them and are there enough actors of, you know, of any particular shape or size? Uh, it's completely freeing in that way. I have constant flashbacks to uh, Dirk's childhood, and I don't need to worry about child actors. I have rhinoceroses and cats and elephants and cheetahs and wildebeests, mm-hmm. and I don't have to worry about animal wranglers. So it's completely free in that way, yes. <laughs> um
2: A non-science fiction project you've been associated with is The Infidel. Um, It's been adapted several times over in different languages and so forth, but I'm wondering if you could ever see it transitioning into a television sitcom at some point.
4: It's so funny you ask. Um, We are talking about that right now. Um, uh, David uh, David Medeal, who obviously created it uh, and is one of my closest collaborators and dearest friends, We've just started talking to each other about maybe it is now time, uh, to take it into the, into, into the television world. And, um, I think we felt, you know, we, we had talked about it a few years ago and we actually had, um, we actually sold a version to NBC. Um, but it never felt quite right. It wasn't, um, the right time for it. And I think now with the, um, you know, with the many new channels, uh, particularly in the US, who are taking braver and braver decisions about the type of content and the type of subject matter that they're willing to make shows about. And with the rise of, uh, more and more interesting diversity in, uh, television comedy, in shows like Blackish, which uh, I just, I think at its best is the best network comedy we have right now because it's dealing difficult issues uh, and it's very funny at the same time uh, shows like fresh off the boat uh, aziz Ansari's master of none which is particularly brilliant because it sort of deals with race issues without being a race show it's a show about uh you know his character in new york as a you know early 30s guy but it brings in kind of through the side door constantly you know issues about what it is to live in diverse America. Uh, So I think there's so much stuff now um, that sort of gives us comfort that we could do the show we want to do, which is a show about race and religion. It's a show about Muslims and Jews. And it's about racism and it's about racial stereotypes. And it's about what those communities and other communities think about each other in the modern world, in an environment in which... Uh, conflict with radical Islam um, or, or, or what is represented as Islam has never been more um, uh, painfully important. So yeah, we're thinking about it. So good, good preemptive question. Uh, I'm hopeful there'll be uh, some news about it this year, but we're we're still just in the talking and planning stages. But I think we're going to try and do it.
2: Cool. I mean, you know, if you can't get it on on the uh, on on the networks like HBO or something like that, it's always Netflix or Amazon, isn't they? So you can always yeah, do it streaming.
4: More and more interesting platforms uh, for
2: stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I can't believe how how things have actually come on in recent years. I mean, there's a lot of shows that I watch now that I probably never have seen a few years back, or they may have, may have ran for a couple of episodes and been cancelled because were just too different.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I think that you know the, the big the big shift is moving away from the network environment where things had to be supported by advertising and therefore A you needed to reach to reach a really mass audience and B you had to keep you know colour companies and soap companies happy, um, to a model today where the best of these shows exist on platforms that have a direct relationship with an audience, mm-hmm. as you say, Netflix, Amazon, HBO. Those are all companies where they're not selling advertising. They're they're charging you and me a subscription fee, and so they don't care what the soap companies and the car companies think, and they don't care if they uh if they don't need every show to appeal to their whole uh audience base. They need the, each show to appeal deeply and passionately to a small subset of their audience base. And so you get great work that may only reach, you know, hundreds of thousands or the low millions of people, but that reaches them passionately and they'll pay their money just to watch that show. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, to go back to, you know, comics and theater and other mediums, that's always been the secret of great stuff, is you start with a small audience who are passionate about they stick around for you. And you know this, you know, from your cultivating your website and your podcast, you keep the loyal fans and you build gradually out from there. And that's how great art, particularly great long-term storytelling happens, you know, from Charles Dickens writing his novels episodically uh, in magazines uh, or Sherlock Holmes, for that matter, Colin Doyle doing it. Um, to modern-day comics and now modern-day television, uh, to Shakespeare, you know, touring around with a company of traveling actors. You please the people who turn up. They tell their friends, next time more people turn up. (laughs) And you just need to stay alive long enough. Uh, for
2: that audience to grow big enough yeah. um, by, by talking to you It's obvious that you're a huge fan Of Douglas Adams um, And um, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty much Guessing that you're probably familiar With, 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 the, uh, with the work that he did on, on Doctor Who As a story editor And I think he was executive producer for a while Yes
4: um,
2: You know, Can you actually see yourself at any point Maybe writing a Doctor Who episode Maybe <laughs>
4: Um, uh, so, so I think, I think Doctor Who is in the best hands it has ever been in. Um, and I think Steven is someone who was born to run that show and I want him to keep running it for as long as, you know, as long as he's alive. Um, I think, um, uh, interestingly, um, I wasn't a Who, uh, you know, sort of who fan as a kid, uh, for whatever reasons I didn't come across it. Um, probably because I didn't grow up in the UK, I grew up in Asia, um, until I was, you know, until I was in my teens. And I discovered it really through Doug Gently because here's the, you know, here's the interesting, uh, sort of linkage, here's the secret. Uh, yeah, so Douglas ran, you know, I mean, they didn't call them, um, executive producers or showrunners in the, in, in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, he was the story editor, but he was the lead writer. Uh, for I think two years of Doctor Who and he wrote some of the best episodes ever. He wrote City of Death, mm-hmm. um, you know, which consistently gets voted and just is one of the yeah. best episodes of Doctor Who ever. Or not episodes, it's, it's a three episode arc. Um, uh, and he also wrote a, a another arc called uh, Shada. Yep. Um, and and you know you're you're who so you'll know this. You know, Shada didn't get made uh, at the time, I think it was a fire or a strike or both. Um, and it didn't, and production got shut down and it didn't get made. And it ultimately got made, um, uh, I think as a, as a radio special, uh, or as a, uh, um, web exclusive years later. And, and here's a brilliant thing, the guy who produced that is my friend James Goss. Uh, and James is who uh, I co-adapted the play with twenty-something years ago. <laughs> wow! Uh, so everything, you know, everything really is connected. Now, just to make that even more so, when Sharda didn't get made and Douglas left Doctor Who, um, he was uh, had a contract to write a new novel. Of you know, he had written the first three Hitchhiker's novels, and he wa- he thought, oh, I want to write a detective series. And he looked back at the plot of Shada and he thought, oh, there's sort of a plot that I could do in a detective series here. And that's what the first Dirk Gently novel is. Uh, you know, Professor Cronotis um, in Shada is a time lord. He's a retired time lord. And, and uh, the Dirk takes the place of the doctor. Um, and so Dirk starts sort of as fan fiction, or at least a revision. And of course, you know, has then made it his own thing, and he created lots of other mythology and, you know, stripped out all the Doctor Who stuff. But that's the DNA. That's how it starts. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's fantastic now um, again get to be able to return to that heritage. You know, our show is going to be uh, our Dirt generally is going to be on BBC America. BBC America is the American home of Doctor Who. Um, and, and my friend James has just written the novelization of City of Death. So he's just written and which became a bestseller. So, you know, so he's now got to write the Douglas Adams novel of Doctor Who. Now, I said I would never want to try and do Douglas's prose. I found it too intimidating. James actually did a really good job. And if you haven't read it and your listeners haven't read it, I recommend it. It's... It's it's both a great Doctor Who novel and sort of the D- Douglas Adams novel that we wouldn't otherwise have. A
2: mm-hmm. well, favourite Douglas Adams uh, Doctor Who story of mine, and it's one that doesn't really get as much love as *A uh, City of Death, um, is The Pirate Planet, and it was part of a Key to Time art that they did over yeah. that series. Um, you know, I just thought the guy that played the lead pirate, and that was just absolutely amazing. I was actually mesmerized by, by by that that performance.
4: Totally right, totally right. And 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 Douglas was always interested in pirates and and in ships. He ended up making uh, what was at the time a really groundbreaking uh, computer game called Starship Titanic, uh, which if which uh, I don't think you can get anymore, but. Or maybe it's been reissued in some format uh, Which has, you know, I think made some homage to the Pirate Planet And of course, you know, Stephen plays homage to the Pirate Planet as well uh, it was a, I, don't know, I forget what season, about three seasons ago And Hugh Bonneville turns up playing a pirate
2: Yeah, that was, um, yeah that, that was three seasons ago That's Curse of the Black Spot, I think
4: There you
2: go Was the uh, name of the episode And you know, I don't know where I pulled that out from <laughs>
4: Oh, that's, that's well done. <laughs> you that's know. well done. Okay. Um, uh and of course and of course, by happy coincidence, uh i have worked with Hugh ago and we were friends, so I got to uh, talk to him about playing a pirate and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> talk to him, which he very much enjoyed. So once again, interconnectedness of all things.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, another project that you've been working on, um, which hasn't been touched on too much, it involves a certain Professor Challenger from Arthur Conan Doyle's um, underappreciated, I'd say, Lost World book. Um, how did this come about for you and uh, what can you tell us about production at such an early stage?
4: Uh, well, look, things are really, uh, really early. Um, so um, I'm very happy to talk about kind of why we're trying to do it. Um, uh, so let's do that it, again you know this goes back this is sort of obviously a trope of my life this goes back to me being a kid and being a fan everything starts for me by being a fan um, I read the Sherlock, the Sherlock Holmes stories as a very young child and I read the Challenger stories as also a very young child and, um, and obviously people have done a lot with Sherlock and actually people have done a lot with Challenger but the thing they've always done is the Lost World You know, there have been seven or eight, maybe more than that, uh, TV and film adaptations of The Lost World going back, you know, a hundred years now. Um, I think the, um, you know, there was the most recent one, um, is, uh, the BBC one with Bob Hoskins. Um, there, of course, the Michael Crichton novel in Jurassic Mm -hmm. Park is hugely indebted to the Lost World. It basically is the Lost World, uh, so much so that the second book and the second movie is called the Lost World. Um, but uh, you know, the, but the adaptations go back way, way before that. There's a uh, you know, there's a 1961 with Claude Rains as Challenger. There's a 1925 one with you know, oh, no one, any one of us will ever remember, um, and it just keeps happening. Um, got, you know, I've just, wrote the list of people who have played, uh, Challenger, John Reese Davis, you know, uh, it's, it's incredible. Uh, Bob Hoskins. Um, uh, so I, I always loved the character because the character, unlike Holmes, is, um, you know, he's, he is similar to Holmes in that he is brilliant, um, and, you know, the greatest, the smartest man in any room and that, you know, he has the arrogance that comes with that. But he's unlike Holmes in that he's incredibly sort of venal and human and lusty and angry and physical. <laughs> and you know, this is not a cerebral brain. You know, Holmes famously says, you know, I am a brain, the rest of me is mere appendage. And he's all you know, and he's not interested in food or you know, sensual pleasures or love or anything else. Challenger is just sort of much more human than that. He's a Caveman in a lounge suit, he'll he'll pick a bar fight as easily and, and eagerly as he'll pick a um, uh, an intellectual fight. He's a drunk. He's a um, uh, you know he he falls in love. You know he has a wife who he's very in love with. Um, he's he's sort of lusty and physical and big and and you know I I just fell in love with that as a character. And so we thought that's an opportunity to do something, mm-hmm. and to take that character and to put it into new adventures. Um, now, what those new adventures are, I think it's totally say, but what, I'm, what I'm, I'm very happy to talk about is the uh, the adventure it was to get the rights because, um, and a lot of people don't, don't realize this, but you know Sherlock Holmes and Challenger are still in copyright, at least outside the UK. Mm-hmm. In the UK, the rules are a little different, and it's become public domain. But in the US and in a lot of other major territories, um, the condo estate still owns this stuff and they're very good, uh, as they should be in policing and, 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 and making sure they get paid. And so I had to go and sort of a fun adventure to get the rights because there are also a bunch of other people out there who claim they have the rights and they don't. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of pretenders to the crown. Uh, who will, you know, pop out of the woodwork, and there have been loads of lawsuits over the years. Um, but brilliantly, when, you know, I got into a real conversation with the, um the literary executor, uh, he's a, he's a brilliant man, uh, who lives in uh, New Mexico, uh, called John Lellenberg. And John, um, John used to be, he's retired now, He used to be um, an NSA, Pentagon-based cryptologist. Wow. (laughs) This was was a man responsible for uh, cracking military codes. He's a a black hat spy. And and I just mean black hat, he's a white hat spy. He's a good guy. Uh, But that's his background. He's kind of... You know, a sort of sight, you know, sort of a story in himself waiting to happen. And what had happened is he was a huge fan of, uh, of Colin Doyle and he was a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the, you know, the sort of hardcore high-end, you know, celebrity fan club. Mm-hmm. And he noticed in the 80s, that the right situation of the estate had got very convoluted and fragmented. And he wrote to Dame Jean Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle's uh, only daughter, only surviving daughter at that time, uh, and he said, um, Can I help? I'm a fan. My, my wife is an is a intellectual property attorney. I gather things are a bit convoluted. Uh, can I help? And she said, yes, please. And then he made it his life's work to go and track down all the copyrights and untangle the chain of title and like a detective on an adventure. And he brought them all together. And in return, uh, Dan Conlon Doyle made him the lifelong literary executor of the estate. And so now, you know, 30 years later, you go to this retired NSA cryptologist when you want to do something. (laughs) And, uh, and everyone has to go to him, you know, uh, PBS and Warner Brothers and, and CBS for elementary and they have to go to him. And so we have been talking and negotiating for a while. And I think the way I, you know, persuaded him, the two, the two, the two stories, one is I, you know, cause they've they got a lot of interest. A lot of people wanted to do it. And have wanted to do it over the years and at the time that we were talking to yet another, uh, at least one other author. And, um, and I was, and the way I, the two ways I persuaded him, um, was I sent him a poem that I had written as a seven year old about <laughs> poems. And, and all I can remember of it now is the line, um, uh, 221B Baker Street, where two old friends once did meet. Where is the pipe on which one did smoke? Where are the fumes on which the other did choke? And it's <laughs> awful, seven-year-old dog girl. But but I think it charmed him that I had written it as a kid and that I kept it. And he said, "All right, let's let's meet. Let's have a conversation." Mm-hmm. And um, and then when we were organising to meet, we organised to meet in London because we were both going to be there. And. I thought I was being really clever. I said, "Let's meet at the Cafe Royale um, in London, uh, which is what it's just been it's been refurbished recently, and it's this kind of beautiful hotel now." But crucially, I knew it featured in a number of the Sherlock Holmes stories because it's been about four hundred and fifty years, um, and so I thought I was being you know I was kind of showing what a what a clever. Um, fan I was except, and here's the problem he goes, no we can't be there, that's full of bad omens, because Sherlock was beaten brutally there by one of Moriarty's operatives, the colonel <laughs> Oh, my God, i completely, I'm completely <laughs> lost my copybook. I mean, you know, Alton is only a, you know, a, a level three fan, not, not, not a black belt. And, uh, and then brilliantly he said, obviously, where we should meet is the bar at the Criterion, which is where mm-hmm. Holmes and Watson have their first dinner before agreeing to move in together to 221B Baker Street. And so that's where we met. Tragically, the Criterion has just closed. It's gone into administration after 150 years. Wow. Um, but and it was still open you know, last year a year before when we met. And yeah, all the whiskey, and, you know, in the, hopefully in the very same seats that, uh, that, that Holmes and Watson had their first dinner, uh, I shook hands with John Lellenberg, the executor of the Commonwealth Estate, and we got the rights to Professor Challenger. Mm-hmm.
2: I think I think they actually <laughs> used use the uh, criterion in in an episode of sherlock yes they have, Quite
4: the they have. and can,
2: moving off tacking it, uh you're also working on on a musical which is based on the songs from an artist morisset um from the I think it's c d the Jagged Little pill yes uh, how did that come about and doesn't uh, does, does an have any input into it with you?
4: Uh, yes, she's, she's hugely involved um, and fantastically so. Um, again, and I'm afraid my answers are getting boring because I was the same. Again, I was just a fan. Um, uh, Alanis and I are, are almost exactly the same age and that album came out for me when I was at college, and, which is amazing if you think about it. She wrote that when she was like 21. Wow. Um, uh, and she wrote it in six months. And um, and, um, and I have been a fan ever since. And, um, it had never occurred to me until, until a few years ago. And I was, I was, you know, I was in the shower. It was playing. I was singing along, because obviously I'm a big girl's blouse. Uh, but I'm a musical theater fan. I, the only place I can sing is in the shower. And, and then I sort of stop and I go, oh, bugger me. It's a story. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a show. There's a narrative in this. And you sort of always know that there is a, you know, It is an album that is about love and loss and and, and maturity and friendship um, and about the tragic love affair and the power dynamics of a younger woman and a more powerful man. That's clear. But what I suddenly had at that moment was, oh, no, it's it's, it's not just that. There is an actual narrative that will fall out of this. Um, And once I knew that, I sort of needed to do something with that because as a storyteller, you can't have an idea for a story and then not tell it. And um but I you know I didn't know Alanis and I'm um uh, whilst I now am working quite a lot in theater at the time of having the idea I was mainly working in, in in film and TV, and I didn't think it was a film or TV story. You know, it felt like something that needed to be on stage. And so I didn't do anything for a little while, but then I was having dinner with a friend who is a Broadway producer. Um, a guy called Vivek Tiwari who made American Idiot uh, and The Addams Family and um, and I said um, at like literally the end of he said Vivek what you know when's the last time you listened to Jack and Little Pill and he went oh no not, 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 not for years um, why do you think there's something I said yeah I said go home and listen to tonight and call me tomorrow <laughs> and he called me tomorrow and he went you're right this is a show um, and so then we 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 got in touch with all Addis's people and, um, we sort of thought that, you know, she must have been approached to do this 20 times because the album at this point is, is 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And we thought, you know, surely we can't be the first people to have had this idea. Um, but amazingly, apparently we were. <laughs> and, um, and which just goes to show that it's either a really stupid idea or we're really clever. And I suspect it's, 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 it's not the latter. Uh, but, um, they were intrigued and they said, why don't we set for you guys to have lunch with Alanis and see what she thinks. And that was about, that was about two years ago. And Alanis said yes at once. Uh, cause she is wonderful and makes decisions quickly and has a real sense of when something is right and when people are right. And we just go on very well. And, um, two years later, which is where we are now. We're finally starting because it took, despite the fact she said yes at once because she's wonderful, uh, it turns out that lawyers and music publishers and music lawyers in particular, um, don't move that quickly. So mm-hmm. two years later, we're now, we're now really making it. Um, and we're just putting together the team of, of, um, you know, uh, director and writer and designer. And, um, there's going to be a, a workshop later this year. And I expect
2: that we will be on stage next year. Very cool. I'm hoping that works out So I, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm kind of a fan of, of uh, all sorts of music from rock, blues, jazz, and, um, you know, musicals are kind of like a guilty pleasure mm-hmm. every now and again. But I'm sort of like, um, I think what's got me into wanting to learn to play guitar over the, certainly over the last three, four years is sort of like, um, I I just saw, like, I get an amazing sense of um, calm when I'm, when I'm playing the guitar. It just calms me down and, you know, and, um, this this hitting certain chords and, and notes and stuff like that. And I think with, with good songs, as you say, for me, a good song, it's got to have a story. It's got to have some sort of narrative to it. That's why I don't like pop music.
4: <laughs> well, you know, there are plenty of great pop songs that do have a narrative. Um but, but you're right, the, 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 the worst music doesn't. Um but for me anyway, I think, you know, people have different tastes, but you know, in a, in a week where I'm still mourning Prince, um, you know, Prince infuses, in, in mm-hmm. you know, Prince is pop, as well as being funk and rock and r and mm-hmm. and all the other things he is, uh, but you know, Prince has very, you know, absolutely had a pop sensibility, but every one of his stories, every one of his songs is a story. Uh, you know, creates a cast of characters and takes you on a journey. Uh, he's the most you know, theatrical of, of pop artists. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, but even, even Abba occasionally takes you on a story. Uh, I, think, I think all good music should be a guilty pleasure in the sense of it should be, um, um, you know, private and special and you want it for yourself. But you also want to share it and, and I think sharing music is always that moment where we feel exposed because we know that unlike you know more than almost any other art, um, loving a piece of music says something about who we are, uh, says something about who we are inside the places that we don't share and therefore sharing that piece of music uh, is giving someone else information about who we are and uh, I think that's why we talk about guilty pleasures when it comes to slightly cheesy stuff because we're admitting that it really touches us and moves us, even if we wouldn't want to admit that in normal conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, back, back onto the
2: world of comics, you, you've actually got a, a new series, new comic book series in the works with uh, Mike Carey. Um, yes. What, what can you tell us about about that? Um, and what's it been like for you to work with Mike Carey?
4: Um, it has been, uh, it continues to be a great joy. I've known Mike for about ten years now. And, but I was a fan, again, boring answer, i was always a fan first. <laughs> uh, I was a fan before we met. I, uh, I had read his, his Lucifer series, which remains, I think, one of the, you know, great arcs of comic writing. And I had been reading that as it came out through its, you know, I think it ran for five years, six years, I want to say, 75 issues, six years. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just thought this man's a genius; these are our you know and you know all the more so We were talking a bit about adaptation and walking in the genius's footsteps, you know, why didn't create that version of Lucifer? Neil Gaiman did in the Sandman mm-hmm. and to and to and to write something that that comes from uh you know one of the great uh comics of all time and then make it another of the great comics of all time. Is an extraordinary, you know, uh, and, and it was one of his first things. I mean, Mike had been writing comics for a little while, but you know, Lucifer is what made his name and what and what is really, you know, uh, what established him as the as the huge uh, creator he is. So I was a fan, and then um, one day I, I bought. Uh, he Mike also writes uh, novels. He writes prose novels as as and screenplays. He just writes everything. It's a huge talent, and. Um, but I, I, I had just been given uh, one of his first novels, and I noticed that the dedication was to somebody I knew, um, uh, It was to a British agent a woman called Meg Davis. Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually even weirder, I was at a lunch in which she was at when I had been given this book. It was like 10 people at the lunch, and one of my friends gave me the book as a gift. And Meg was at the other end of the table. And so I just walked around. I was like, Meg, why is this book dedicated to you? And she's like, well, Mike's my client. (laughs) And I was like, can he and I have breakfast tomorrow? Uh, And we did. And we did. And we've been uh, friends uh, ever since. And we have uh, collaborated on a couple of feature film and television projects that have not seen light of day, sadly in the way that many feature film and television projects don't always see light of day, but through those collaborations, we got to really you know know and trust each other, and uh, you know, actually coming out of one of those collaborations came the idea for this comic. Um, and I you know I I, I it's it's it's, it's I know, we're we're literally writing the first issue now. Um, it's not going to come out till later in the year, so I don't want to sort of have too many spoilers. But I will say that you know, writing with one of the greats uh, in a medium. Uh, is again, it's intimidating, but Mike is so generous uh, and so kind and a good teacher uh, because he used to be a teacher. Um, and, and, and he's one of the guys, by the way, who I sent my first draft of my gently, you know, comic script to. And I said, Mike, you know, help me out. Am I do I have any clue what I'm doing here? And he gave me notes that were so enormously helpful. And I think, I think, the latest issue had, there's a special thanks to him. Uh, for that reason. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great joy. Look, I'm an extraordinarily lucky human being. I'm getting to collaborate, you know, from beyond the grave with Douglas Adams, uh, and in real, uh, and in, and with the living, you know, David Medill, Mike Carey, Alanis Borisett, uh, beyond the grave, Father Colin Doyle, um you know, with some of my heroes, it was some of my favorite writers. So, uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fanboy's dream come true. What's the comic going to be
2: called, the one you're doing with with uh, Mike Carey, just so I can keep an eye out for it?
4: Um, it's going to be called Darkness Visible. Okay, thanks. That, that,
2: that sounds like, um, you know, I'm quite looking forward to that. I've actually been watching the News for TV series, which, um, you know, completely different uh, because the uh, character in the comic is really, really mean, <laughs> spirited, <laughs> and and a bit of an arsehole, excuse the language. <laughs> But the the, um, the 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 TV version is you know more smarmy um, you know not not re- not really nothing nothing like the comic book character at all. It's been totally yeah. dumbed down. Yeah,
4: don't get
2: me started. Don't get me started so, on that. We'll have to a whole other podcast to talk about um, Adam Truman, and and Lucifer. <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I've kind of had to enjoy the TV series as its own thing. Um, you know, and, and just separate from 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 the comic cause it's sure. the only way you can do it. Well, um, you know, it's it's been great speaking with you, and it's obvious uh, from speaking with you that you that you have a um, you have a great appreciation for really really good uh, good writing. And I'm I'm just wondering, aside from Douglas Adams and Arthur Conan Doyle. Are there any other writers for for you know of novels, comics or television that that that, that you that, that you'd you'd like to have a shot at adapting in future?
4: I don't know. Well, look, you know, it's always about your heroes. And um, my sort of you know, the one great hero who I'm not I haven't yet dared to even think about, uh, is Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. Um, who, you know, there's a straight line in British comedy writing that goes from Oscar Wilde to P.G. Woodhouse to Douglas Adams. And, but it starts with Wilde. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have an idea to do something with one of his works, but I, I I'm not quite ready. <laughs> he, he, he is too giant a figure in literature and in my personal canon. I'm not quite ready, but I'm getting there. I'm working my way towards it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine with Oscar Wilde's appreciation for anything uh, for irony, <laughs> he'd be a difficult one to 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 do adaptations of.
4: Yeah, and also look, and, and the work is so specific. And I'm and this, I'm not talking about the plays. I mean, you know, I I have staged and acted in some of the plays, and I will return to them as plays, mm. but. In some of his prose writing, you know, he wrote a lot of, uh, he wrote a lot of sort of fables. Um, and there is, I think, material in some of those that might lend itself uh, to a new life.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I Avind, mean, it's been really great speaking with you and um, I'm hoping that all, all, of, all of your projects can lead <coughs> you to some some great successes. Um, thanks so much for your time. It's been wonderful speaking with you.
4: Thanks, Ian. I've enjoyed it too. Here at SFP Now, I think we're pretty sure we um, got our priorities straight
2: and that about wraps things up for this week um, I'd like to uh, thank Avind, Ethan, David for you know, giving us his time um, as well as uh, Risa and Craig for doing the uh, conversational segment Uh, We'll be back next time and the next episode we're going to have Julian Chambliss coming back with another exciting interview for Beyond Impossible so you've got that to look forward to next time. Uh, As always, don't forget to check out uh, Mark's Pyle and John Retainment um, here at Sci-Fi Pulse Radio and, um, you know, if you want to go to all the past shows uh, they're all archived at scifipulseradio.com um, as well as on iTunes um, at Sci Fi Post Radio um, on there, and we're also on Stitcher. Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.